don't normally do this, and I don't even know if the band is in here, but would you all help me give them thanks for uh, all they, they do to lead us? And... <clears throat> As for you, B. My first car was a VW Bug, blue one. It's probably the last one ever made. Last one off the line, I imagine. You know, back then they had uh, four on the floor. It was just a stick shift. There were a lot more stick shifts back then. And uh, I, I don't think that VW Bug ever had a full tank of gas, you know? I mean, I, I, I think I put one or two dollars worth of gas in it at a time. And somehow that, that seemed, it felt like I was saving money that way. I don't know what it was. Every once in a while, now I haven't run out of gas since I was 16. I've come pretty close. I've flirted with it. But I really flirted with it when I was 16. I would, I would, I would put one or two uh, gallons in there. And back then, one or two dollars bought one or two gallons. But I would put a little bit of gas in there, and then it would be on fumes, and I'd go to start it up, and nothing would happen. And uh, you know what I did next. Some of you all know what I did next. I got a couple of buddies to push me, right? And then I'd, I'd push the clutch in. They'd push me along, and then I'd pop the clutch, and... And a lot of times that would, that would be just enough to get, you know, to the gas station so that I could, uh, so I could fill it up. I, I put that image in your head this morning because I, I want you to have a picture of where I think we are in our culture and, in some ways, in the American church. There are cycles. There are cycles of incline, there are cycles of recline, and there are cycles of decline. And even if we as a church are on the incline and, and, and we have a sense of energy and, and growth, in general, our, our culture, I believe, is, is kind of uh, on the recline, if not on the decline. There is a certain sense of what got us here won't get us there. There's a certain sense where if, if, if you understand how, uh, how there, are, there are elements of design to community and structures put in place, habits, values that make our country work. That we seem to be spending down and even into debt, not just a deficit, but, but the values, the very values and ingenuity and investment that got us here. What if, what if we didn't, uh, what, what if we never repaired any of the roads that, that, that a previous generation invested in? What if the infrastructure that we have, we, we never uh, put another dime into it? Eventually, those, those potholes would, would turn the, the, the entire road into dust. You, you have to invest again and again and again. I think at a, at a certain point, you, know, you, you have to understand that a passion, I've said this before, that a passion of one generation can become the duty of the next generation and really a burden to the third. And so you have to invest again and again and again. You have to reconnect with what got you here. I think that's why uh, in, in the 60s and 70s and, and 80s, as the, as the baby boomers were, were, were growing, the, those who... Uh, were born after World War II, for the next decade after World War II, the baby boomers. 
think there was such a distrust for what had been built by previous generations because of the Vietnam War, because of, of Watergate. There was a distrust for what had been built, and so, and, and so there was a trend away from the institutions that previous generations had built. And so in some ways, uh, established churches then turned into chapels rather than being on mission. And so again and again and again, every generation has to, has to decide, how are we going to invest? Not just in the infrastructure, as we've done in the last three years. We've, we've, put, we've put paint on almost everything that had paint on it before. We, we, we've dusted things off. We've, we've, we've tied things together. We've, we've, we've limbed up that beautiful tree in the center of our campus. We've even expanded the campus. We've redone. We just finished redoing the Edwardsville. Not just the infrastructure of, of the church, but the mission. Every generation needs to connect again and again and again with the mission of the church. The, the question this morning is, you know, so what? what, what is, how do we connect with mission? How do we even understand it? I mean, so what about mission? What is mission? How do we understand it? If we don't make, make mission meaningful for our students, for our kids coming up, then the passion that we may have for mission can become a duty to them and a burden to their children. We need to understand how to reconnect them with our mission. You see, that's, that's why Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, was so bold. They had become children of Abraham. They had become, the, the Jews had, had simply become entitled. They had become sort of, he called them stiff-necked. They, he called them people who just simply were entitled to, to salvation and, and had lost the fire of the faith. How do we connect with our mission again? By understanding the message of mission. From John chapter 8, starting with verse 12. Hear God's word this morning. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now jump down to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Now he was talking previously to those 
who, who, who were just simply entitled because of their heritage as children of Abraham, right? Now he's saying to the Jews who believed him, in him, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you said you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. What's he implying there? We'll talk about it in just a minute. Let's pray together. Holy God, bless us now. Bless this word and us through it that we may not only understand it, but be on mission with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Part of my call to ministry involves a concern about the established church, that we don't and shouldn't have to reinvent the church in order to renew it. I came, I came to faith. I grew up in First Presbyterian Church before, uh, before I met Alan, who many of you heard speak here uh, several weeks ago. Before I met him in my teens, I grew up at First Presbyterian Church in a downtown area, and I didn't connect with it personally. I really came alive in the faith through the ministry of Young Life. And uh, as a result, I brought that sense of passion back into the church. And when I went, when we changed churches to Blacknell, I realized this is, this is my, these are my people. This is what I've been missing. I, I've missed the connection. How much of it was me and how much of it was the, the setting, you know, I'll, I'll let you decide. But, but, uh, but, but, but my call was a burden for this thing running around calling itself the church, that it ought to be a church for God's mission. That the church, that the mission of God shouldn't be some department of the church, but the church should be a department of the mission. So let's understand the mission today. The mission that brings meaning to life. Let's understand it by understanding the message of the mission. The message is simply this. It's grace and truth. It's truth and grace. John 1 14 says that Jesus walked among us full of grace and truth. It didn't say he sometimes was graceful and sometimes truthful. He said his grace was truthy and his truth was graceful. Jesus was full, 100% grace, 100% truth. Isn't it tough to make a judgment call about whether you should have grace or truth? It's the hardest thing in life. Jesus was full of grace and truth, had great judgment. And so let's understand the message in terms of grace and truth. So, so truth is simply the truth that sets you free. The truth that sets you free. Now, we have to understand that truth is the truth. If you're going to be set free by truth, you have to understand it as the truth, not just my truth. I mean, it certainly needs to become my truth. It needs to be personalized. 
We'll talk about that in a minute. But it has to be the truth. Now, the problem in this day and age, when, when you're coming up, at, as, as, as I learned in school, that truth is relative, right? Everybody has their own truth, and everybody decides what is true. And for my generation and for the generation behind me, the millennials, there is, there is this sense that no, we, we don't want any, to be taken in by anyone, right? We don't want to buy into somebody else's truth. Just a little bit like what I was saying about the boomers who were setting aside the institutions. We're, we're even more vigilant not to be, not to be hoodwinked by anybody. That, 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 that we're going to find out what's true for us. I'm going to tr- find out what's true for me. I'm going to see through everything else and not buy into somebody else's brand of truth. C.S. Lewis makes a, a comment about this. He says, if, if you're seeing through everything, the purpose of seeing through something is to see something else. The purpose of seeing through something is to see something beyond it. To see through everything is not to see. Did you catch that? Let me put it in the way Chesterton put it. He said, uh, the, the purpose of an open mind, you know, it, it, when I was coming up, open-mindedness was the, the phrase. You got to be open-minded. open mind. I never understood, well, what am I supposed to be open to? Everything, Right? Chesterton said, the purpose of an open mind is to close again, like the purpose of an open mouth is to close again on something of substance, something that can nourish you. See, so whether you're, you're, you're using the metaphor of seeing through everything, or whether you're saying you're so open-minded all your brains fall out, you know, the idea is here that, that it needs, there, there is something that is substantive that is part of what it means to have meaning in the first place. If we can't decide what is meaningful that's common to us, there is no meaning. And this is what we're teaching at the uh, university level. Here's one university professor named Stephen Jay Gould. He said this, We're here because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. Now listen to what he says. This explanation, though superficially troubling, superficially troubling, if not terrifying, okay, which is it, my friend, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. Is that the truth that sets you free? He says so. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers for ourselves. From our own wisdom and ethical sense, there is no other way. Well, I would submit to you that this is philosophy, not science. And it's this kind of philosophy that is leaving a vacuum. Nature does not like a vacuum. And so other things enter into the vacuum. If there is no meaning, there is a vacuum there because we're made as meaningful creatures. We're hungry for meaning. And if there is no meaning, then something else is going to enter in there. And I would say to you this morning, that that is in part why there was a shooting last week at Parkland High School. A vacuum of meaning will not stay there. That 19-year-old had no sense of meaning or purpose. He had no sense that anyone cared about him. 
And as a result, I'm not saying that that excuses it. What I'm saying is this is a consequence. Good ideas have good consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. Stephen Jay Gould, it's a bad idea. Meaninglessness or constructing our own meaning creates a vacuum where all kinds of horrible things can enter in. Last, uh, last summer, I listened to a talk. by This is taking sort of the idea of a vacuum, uh, a vacuum of meaninglessness, right, up to the next level from Parkland High School to an entire country. Last summer, we, we were here in this room with uh, the Global Leadership Summit. And uh, Immaculate, uh, what's her last name? Immaculate Iligiza spoke. And Immaculate is from a, a small country in Africa where there are two, two tribes, two people groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And she's a Tutsi. And as a Tutsi, she, she, was, she had the, the benefit of being in, uh, in, in a tribe or an ethnic group that was sort of in charge. They, they were sort of the elite of that country. And, and there was a lot of tension between the Tutsis and the Hutus. And in 1994, the country blew up. Somebody shot down the president's plane and, and they... The, the Hutus got on the airwaves and told all of the Hutus to kill the Tutsis. Do you remember this? One million people were killed over the course of months. A million people. You think, well, that's, that's those people over there. Well, y'all, it's the same gene pool. We're capable apart from the social structures that order us, if we have no meaning, if we're not grounded in a sense of truth, we will have tyranny and we will not be free. That's why Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's take it a step further now. So so, uh, Immaculate, here she is telling her story. Now here's the powerful part of where truth set her free. She was holed up in a bathroom, a three-by-four bathroom, with 12 other women hiding from the Hutus. A pastor had hidden, a Hutu pastor had hidden her, along with these other women. And they stayed in there for 91 days. When she came out, she was relieved until she found out that everyone in her family had been killed except her brother. And now she was faced with another potential form of enslavement. Was she going to be a slave to hate and unforgiveness? You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, let me illustrate what happens next with uh, Immaculate. It's a little like this. They tell me, uh, I've, I've read several stories about this where pilots have been in training and they've, they've had a, a hood over the, the front of the cockpit so that they have to rely on the instruments and uh, then have gone into clouds and that sort of thing and done some tricks and, and inverted the plane but not recognize that they were upside down. It's a lesson in trusting your instruments. And so upside down, here's a pilot trying to figure out what, what am I supposed to do next. 
and looking at the instrument to see uh, whether or not he's, he's right side up or upside down. And there was one particular story where, where, where with the instructor, he just did not trust it. And he said, you're, you're upside down. No, I'm not. You're upside down. No, I'm not. And you think, how can you not know that you're upside down? Well, when, when, when you're belted in, you're strapped in, and, and there's a lot of turbulence, you, you, you can't necessarily tell. So you have to look and trust your instruments. And so uh, righted the plane, and, and there are several stories where uh, one in particular, where, where a, a 737 did not trust the instruments, and the instruments were broken, and, and there was a, a crash because of it. Trusting your instruments is, is a little bit like saying, look, there's a truth outside of me. I may feel one way, maybe I feel like I'm right side up, but it's upside down. I wonder how Immaculate felt when she considered the idea that she's supposed to forgive and love her enemies. That sounds upside down, doesn't it? I mean, here, a million people have been killed, including most members of her family. And she's trying to figure out, how, how am I supposed to respond to that? And the scripture says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. People who forgive are set free from their hate. That's one truth. One truth that's a principle that, 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 that frames up a kind of human life that helps us to thrive. So we understand our message first by understanding that it's a message of truth. It's also a message of grace, a message of grace. And grace is really just simply tough love. Let me, let me quickly explain to you what, what, what grace looks like, because grace and truth have to go to be, to, together. So, so, so grace and truth, or, or speaking the truth in love. Grace is tough love. Let me say it several different ways. Grace is tough love, right? Tough and love. Grace is unmerited favor, unmerited favor. Grace is the idea that you are uh, unworthy but not worthless. Grace is the idea that, that, uh, that you are more sinful than you ever dare imagine, but more loved than you ever dare dream. That's grace. It's tough love. And see, Billy Graham never, never forgot in any of his messages the grace of God. And I think that's why people connected with him. That's why they connected with his message. They connected with him and his message because it is true that we are more sinful yet more loved. When, when Billy Graham said, just as I am, he didn't say, just as you are. He didn't wag his finger and say to people, you know, you're one of those and I'm one of these. You see, if we're going to be on mission, we have to get the message right. And the message is that grace does not oppose the sinner. Grace does not oppose the sinner. Grace only opposes those who think they're not. That's why it's tough love. It's unmerited favor. I love that story about that, that, that Billy Graham tells to Google. About 10 years ago, he's invited to speak at Google and he's on a plane, Billy Graham's on a plane, he's telling this story to Google, and he's, he's demonstrating his, humili his humil humility about himself, but his confidence in his message. And he says, you know, I was sitting there on this plane, and there was somebody who was drunk and disorderly behind me, who was harassing the flight attendants, and, and one of them finally said, do you know who's on this plane? 
Uh, Dr. Billy Graham is right a few rows in front of, of you, and the, the drunk guy got up and he said, I'll put her there. Your, your Shermans have sure helped me, right? And he got his merge wixed. It's, it's, it's kind of like he's telling the story. He knows his audience. And he's saying, look, this isn't about me. Um, in a way, it is. I'm, I'm one of you. Unmerited favor. Unworthy, but not worthless. You see, what was happening here in this passage is Jesus is talking to people who, who didn't need grace. In their view, they had it made. They were children of Abraham. They were entitled. They were the church. They were Presbyterian all the way back to, uh, uh, to Scotland, right? Or, you know, they grew up in the church, or, or even better, they were Baptist, all right? <laughs> I've said it again. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Baptists make really good Presbyterians. But the idea that, that somehow our heritage saves us, Jesus is confronting, he's poking at it. And what that says to the world is not the message of the gospel. What it says, it, it puts the church in recline. It just says, we've arrived, you haven't. We got the truth, you don't. We're good, you're bad. We're saints, you're sinners. I love the legacy of Billy Graham. You know, he died this past week in 99. Just as I am. He never forgot. He identified with the people he was speaking to. And see, that's mission. That's mission. That's what Jesus does. That, that's what this passage is all about. The greater context of this, of this passage is that, that Jesus has caught a woman in, in adultery just before that. Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. He's speaking into a dark age. He's come from the, 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 the light of heaven into the darkness of the world, and he is walking in our midst. He's identifying, and he's looking out. His arms are stretched out wide, and he's saying, Forgive them, Father. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You know, people will tell you that the message of the gospel is so narrow. You can't get bigger than this. You can't get better than that. Forgive them, Father. For they know not what they do. Grace doesn't oppose the sinner. Grace opposes those who think they're not. Well, finally, let's wrap it up by asking ourselves, how do we approach then? How do we approach the world? With the World Mission Conference coming, with the World Mission Conference coming, reconnecting our, the idea of mission to the message of the gospel, truth and grace, how do we approach the world with this message? And the simple answer is this. Through serving. Serving is the platform of the message. Show and tell. Remember show and tell when you were young? You know, you, you brought an object. You, you had to have something to show, right? You can't just tell, right? You had to show and tell. You had to sit around the circles, crisscross applesauce, and you had to say, this is my you know, favorite whatever, or this is the last time that we went to the whatever, and this is the ticket I have from... You had to show and then tell. See, if we're going to be a, a, a church for God's mission, we need to know how to show it, to show it, to be light. To be light is to serve people. Otherwise, it, it's a little like uh, we're guilty of what the philosopher Foucault said, and that is if you have a bid for truth, right, if you have a bid for truth, it's really a bid for power. We're saying the truth shall set you free. Truth is a, is a flag word to our culture today. 
It's a flag word that says, oh, you've got the truth. You want to be powerful. If, if we're going to be a church for God's mission, then we need to know how to lead with showing and then telling. We need to be able to demonstrate through serving that we have a message that's for you. We don't want something from you. We have a message that's for you. In other words, you can make a point or you can make a difference. And if we're going to make a difference, we have to lead by serving. I'll close with this, with this uh, great story that I think illustrates the entire passage of what Jesus is doing in the midst of people who are just so resistant to him. And it's a story of a guy who, named Joe who, who, who was, who was a, a long-time alcoholic. A long-time alcoholic. Often found in places you didn't need to be. Often uh, uh, stirring things up in a bad way. And he became a Christian. And he began to reach out to other alcoholics who were coming off the street. And he cleaned them up and he picked them up and he cared for them. And there was one guy in particular who was, who was just so broken by his own, his own pattern, life pattern of sin. And the head of the mission uh, came to him and he heard him praying and he kept saying to himself, he was praying, he kept saying, God, make me like Joe. God, make me like Joe. God, make me like Joe. And the head of the mission, he said to him, you know, I think you should be praying this way. God, make me like Jesus. And the man looked at him, he said, is he like Joe? <laughs> Joe was like a Mother Teresa. He showed the power of grace and truth. Not just a, a handout, but a hand up. Not just, not just saying what's true, but demonstrating it. Serving, not just telling people that Jesus was a servant, but demonstrating in a picture of a lifestyle. If we're going to be a people who engage the next generations with a passionate message of Scripture, if we're going to be people who do not go from incline to recline to decline, if we're going to be not just a, a chapel, but a mission, a community on mission, and we have to understand how to connect with that mission through the message of grace and truth. And we need to know how to be Joes for Jesus. We need to understand how to show through serving and then telling. Come be a part of the World Mission Conference this week. Come see all these Joes that we support around the corner and around the world to the place where maybe God will show you where you're called. Maybe it's right where you are to be able to say, here I am, Lord. Send me, perhaps, right where you are. Let's pray together. Holy God, how we thank you for your demonstration of grace and truth that you walked in our midst full of grace, full of truth. Make it so within our own very lives as well that you may reign in our hearts and wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>